Well, good morning to you. I am most grateful for the opportunity uh, to share a three-part series uh, on Matthew 24 and 25, on the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and appreciate Pastor Rob uh, giving me this opportunity. So if you turn in your Bibles, uh, we're going to move through, believe it or not, try to move through 28 verses together as we think about uh, what time is it and now looking at the signs of the times. If you don't have a Bible, there's one under the chair in front of you and it's on page 829 in that Bible, page 829. Uh, you and I know that the news of the day, uh, when you read it and you hear it, it says so many things that we then read about in the scriptures as well. They say things are so chaotic today that they're talking about the perfect storm coming together. Iran nuclear deal, North Korea, China, Israel and the Palestinians, fundamental Islamic on the rise, food shortages, famines, earthquakes, tornadoes, tsunamis, solar eclipse, Rosh Hashanah, and the list goes on and on. And many people have made the mistake of taking all these things we're seeing around us, and some even setting a date for the Lord's return, and have made fools out of themselves. So the question is asked, are what we're seeing today, are these the signs of the time that indicate Christ's second coming is very soon. I think Matthew 24 addresses some of that for us, but let me make an important statement you're gonna hear for three weeks in a row. Examine current events in light of biblical prophecy. Do not read biblical prophecy into current events. Now that's not a tongue twister. I, I, you, if you pay attention to that, it's gonna help you in your understanding of the prophecy. We wanna examine current events in the light of biblical prophecy, but don't read biblical prophecy into current events. At the same time, we're told in the scriptures, be you ready, for in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man is going to return. So as we think about the Lord's return, it's only right that we ask the question, what time is it? Matthew 24 and 25 is referred to as the Olivet Discourse, and there's a reason for that. As we come to the completion of Matthew 23, if you have your Bible in front of you, you'll see that Jesus expresses his great love and compassion for the Jewish people and for the city of Jerusalem. You hear the cry of his heart, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, verse 27 of 37 of Matthew 23, the city that kills the prophets, how often I would have gathered you, but you were not willing. Your house is left unto you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Verse 1, Jesus left the temple, and as he was going away, his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. 
He said, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, when are these things going to be? And what would be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So he weeps over Jerusalem, as it were. He leaves the eastern gate. I hope to take you to Israel, those who want to go next year, by the way. And he goes down over the Kidron Brook, goes up past the Garden of Gethsemane, and he goes up on the Mount of Olives. It's a beautiful sight. There's only, there's only two miles, and when we think about that, Jesus was on that, on that geographical area, and his feet will light upon there at the second coming, as we'll see next week, Lord willing. When he's up on the Mount of Olives, Mark tells us, Four disciples came to him, James, Peter, John, and Andrew. And as it were, they came to him privately. They've just heard that their beautiful city and the temple, the house of God is going to be wasted so that one stone won't be left on another. And so they asked the question, when shall these things be? When is Jerusalem and the temple going to be destroyed? And then they add... What looks like two questions, but it's really only one. And what shall be the sign of thy coming? Now, why did he ask that? Because all through the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Zechariah, they all put the destruction of the temple, Jerusalem, and the second coming, it, it kind of fit all together. So when are these things going to be? When is Jerusalem, the temple, going to be destroyed? And what shall be the sign of your coming? And of the end of the age. Literally in the Greek that should read, what shall be the sign of their coming? Even the end of the age. The sign of his coming in the end of the age is one and the same question. Now you're not going to find the answer to the first question in Matthew 24. If you want the answer to that question, you go to Luke, a, a parallel portion, you read Luke 21. But he answers the second question, what shall be the sign of their coming even of the end of the age? Here in Matthew chapter 24. And so he gives us signs that are going to precede his coming. And there's one sign in particular to really watch for. And there there is the ultimate sign, Lord willing, we'll see next Sunday morning. That answers the question, what will be the sign of your coming? During our study this week, you'll hear me repeat several times these three truths that you must understand. If you, if you go and get 10 commentaries on, the, on Matthew 24, you'll probably get 10 interpretations. It's one of the most difficult passages to have a clear understanding, and I'll tell you why I think that's true. Is because they don't understand, to understand Matthew 24 and 25, you must understand these three points here on the screen. Number one, Israel is in view here, not the church. Let me make a dogmatic statement here that might startle some of you. What he's going to tell us in Matthew 24 has nothing to do with you and the day you're living in. It's Israel in view, it's not the church, you're the church. It's the tribulation period is the time in mind, not the church age. Now, you've got to put yourself in the shoes of a Jewish disciple back in those days. 
2,000 years, God has been working through the Jewish nation. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Promises are giving. The promises about the land. Promises about a coming king. Promises about a new covenant. Everything has to do with the Jew. And everything has to do with God's coming kingdom on earth. So when Jesus came, he came as the king, as the Messiah. But they rejected the Messiah. So Jesus says, well, I'm going to reject you now. And I'm going to postpone, not eliminate, I'm going to postpone the kingdom. And instead of now working through the Jewish people as I've done for 2,000 years, I'll build my church, that's you. And the gates of hell won't prevail against it. And in Acts chapter 2, as the baptism of the Holy Spirit came, which is the act of Jesus Christ, whereby the Holy Spirit places uh, every believing sinner into the body of Christ, the church began being formed on Acts 2. And for 2,000 years, God's been bringing out living stones, black ones from Africa, yellow ones from Hong Kong, white ones from Estonia. And he's been adding to that spiritual body. And but one of these days, that body is going to have the last stone added into it, and God's going to call the building the church, the body of Christ home. So keep in mind, we're talking about the Jewish period. And so you must understand Israel viewed not the church. The tribulation period is in view not the church age. And third, the revelation that is the second coming of Christ to earth is in view not the rapture. It's like the second coming has a twofold aspect to it. The rapture when Christ comes in the clouds, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, John 14, Revelation 3.10. And he calls the church... He brings those who have died in Christ with him, and, and those who are alive shall be caught up. That, that word caught up is the, is the Latin word rapturo, from which we get the English word rapture, the rapture of the church, the catching up of the church, and they're taken to heaven. And then immediately after that, seven years of tribulation falls upon the earth like the earth has never known upon the people of the earth. And the whole purpose of it is to prepare Israel for her coming king, whom they rejected at his first coming. And then at the end of the seven-year tribulation, Christ comes in a revelation. He comes back in the second coming to establish his kingdom upon earth. Now, you have an insert in your bulletin today with a prophetic chronological chart. And it's the red section in the timeline that is the focus of Matthew 24. You've got to understand this. You'll notice to the left is the church age. That's what we're in. That's right now. Now you say, well, what are the signs preceding the rapture of the church? None. He said, now wait a minute. I thought I've heard people, none. There are no signs preceding the rapture. We're not looking for signs, class, what? We're listening for the sound, the sound of the trumpet. When the trumpet shall sound, and the dead in Christ shall rise, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet the, the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. No sign. It can happen at any moment. Could have happened a thousand years ago, fifteen hundred years ago. Could have happened at any time. Could have happened today before this service is over. And so once the church is taken out, then a seven-year tribulation period begins. How do we know that's seven years long? We'll get to that in a few moments. Let's move quickly now and look at the signs of the times, and there are 10 of them. Can you believe it? We'll, we'll do our best to get through them. Number one sign is the sign of deception. And you see that in verses 4 and 5. See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am Christ, and they will lead many astray. 
So the deception in verses four and five has to do with the leading of the Israelites into doctrinal error in light of their historical record of having failed to recognize and receive the true Messiah. And this is gonna happen also in the tribulation period, especially at the beginning. Now we know it's been happening all through church history as well. There's always been those people who have claimed to be the Christ. I think of recent history where you have religious leaders like David Koresh, uh, Jim Jones, Sung Yong Moon, all claiming to be Messiah, all claiming to be the Christ. But there's going to be an abundance of false messiahs who will appear on the scene during the tribulation period. Look at the second sign. It's what I call discord. And we see that in verses 6 and 7. And you will hear wars and rumors of wars. Don't be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. There's going to be discord. There's going to be a lot of wars in the tribulation period. And the whole focus of that tribulation, when Daniel talks about the armies of the north and the armies of the south and the armies of the east, and there's one person in particular who's amounting his ascendancy. He is whom John refers to as the Antichrist. The Antichrist is going to be the world leader who comes first as a man of peace, but he's really a man of war. More about that later. But he's making his ascendancy over the nations. There'll be a lot of wars all around the world, some near Jerusalem, others reported. A Norwegian statistician computed that during 5,560 years of recorded history, there's been 14,531 wars. Another study showed that in the last 4,000 years, there have been only 268 years of peace. The tribulation period will be characterized by war and bloodshed. Leaders will vie for control of the earth through their armies, and there's going to be great wars and a lot of loss of life like we've never seen. A third sign is in verses 7 and 8. At the end of verse 7, notice what you read. For nation will rise against, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of sorrows or the beginning of the birth pangs. So earthquakes and famines. Now we know something about earthquakes and famines and tsunamis. With the rise of seismology, we can keep track of earthquakes and know something about their intensity. And what about famines? Just mention the countries of Somalia, Ethiopia, Venezuela, Sudan. But even what we see today is nothing compared to the devastation the world will encounter during this seven-year tribulation period. If you want to read about it intensely, read Re Revelation, the last book of the Bible, chapter 6 to 18. That whole passage covers what's happening in this seven-year period of time. And it's an intensity that begins with seven sealed judgments, seven seal into seven trumpets, seventh trumpet into seven vows. And it's an increasing violence that happens during this seven-year period of time, just before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the tribulation period will be a time of unprecedented deception, disaster, discord. Now notice in verse 8, all these are the beginning of birth pangs. But then in verse 8 he says, uh, or verse 14, he says, then the end will come. And we ask, well, what end? Well, the end that they asked in the question, what shall be the sign of thy coming, even the end of the age? So he says, this is going to begin it. All these things of disasters and discord, 
Wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes. This is all the beginning. It's like a, he uses the analogy of a woman who's pregnant and, and the birth pangs then begin and she knows what? Sooner or later the child's going to be born. But at that first strike of the birth pang, she knows that's the beginning that will result in a birth of a child. So these are the birth pangs that are awaiting the birth of a child. The regathering and the regeneration, the new birth of the nation of Israel. Ezekiel 36, 37, 38, 39. Israel will be born again. Fourth is death. Verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. Do you see how things are increasing? How they're getting worse and worse? They're going to deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated. He's speaking to the Jews. He's speaking about anti-Semitism where the Jewish people are hated. Now we see that today. But we see nothing like it's going to be at this period. The Jews will be hated by people all around the world. Why? Satan has always hated the Jew. Because the Jew is the person, the nation that brings about the promises of life eternal. The seed of the Messiah was a Jew. The kingdom, the king will be the king of the Jewish nation, but the king of the world. The son of David. It doesn't mean believers won't be persecuted before that time like in our day. Fact of the matter, Christians are being put to death now. Figures cited really show that 105,000 Christians are killed each year solely because of their faith. Every five minutes, one Christian is put to death solely because he's a Christian. If we are here one hour, that means 12 Christians will be put to death. Beheaded, stoned, murdered, decapitated. But the text emphasizes the persecution of the Jewish people in the tribulation period. And instead of having peace, that they will for a short time, as we'll see, there's going to be persecution. It's anti-Semitism at its worst. You'll be hated by all nations for my namesake. Wesley Pippert, you know, UPI's manager for Israel, wrote this. Many nations, particularly in the United States and in the third world, despise Israel. He's talking about today. Though I cannot offer formal evidence, I sense a rise of anti-Semitism in the world, even in the United States. Matthew 24, 9 said it's only going to get worse. Our hearts bleed for the Jewish people. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. There's a fifth sign, desertion, verse 10. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Jews will be betrayed by their own countrymen who submit to the lie of the Antichrist. And there will be tremendous martyrdom and persecution of true Israeli believers as well as Gentile believers. Earlier this morning I was reading when they cried out, those who had been martyred in this very period of the tribulation period. There were so many they couldn't be numbered who had been martyred for Christ. And somehow from heaven they could see what was happening on earth. And you remember, they cry out in Revelation chapter 6, Oh Lord, how long, how long? Until you are vindicated. 
and this hatred stops. Number six, there's disinformation. Verse 11, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Keep in mind, if you would, that when the Lord raptured his church, that means every good Bible-believing pastor, teacher, and leader has been taken out of this world. Every Christian is gone. So when this tribulation period begins, only unbelievers are there. Paul talks about the he who restrains, the restrainer being the Holy Spirit, taken out of this earth. Because the Holy Spirit, the restrainer, moves through the Christian, through the church. Do you, can you imagine how much evil you are holding back as a Christian through your influence? We see all the pressure in our own country today. Turn away from the moralities. Turn away from the past. Turn away from the traditions that made this nation great. And it's the Christian voice, it's the moral voice that speaks up and says, No, 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 we won't have that. And it's still on its march, isn't it? So take the Bible out of the schools in 1963 and in a symbolic gesture say, we will not have God to reign over us. It's easy then in 10 years to legalize abortion, the murder of children. It's easier 10 years later than to legalize homosexuality. Until once you lose that moral foundation, it's a domino effect. We see nothing of it today like it's going to be in the tribulation period. False Christ, verse 5. Joined by these false prophets, verse 11. And they'll teach doctrines that are full of religious truth, but not the truth of the gospel. A form of godliness while denying the power. Verses 12 and 13. A seventh sign is depravity. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, to the end what? To the end of the tribulation period. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Notice that lawlessness will increase. And while this lawlessness has to do with the civil laws of the land, it probably has more to do with God's moral laws than any other. Jesus said in another place, he said, as we're in the days of Noah, so shall be in the days of the Son of Man. And what were the days of Noah like that will be the same in the days of the tribulation period? There was immorality throughout the earth. There was the rejection of the word of God. And there was violence in the earth. Those are your three characteristics. And that's what's going to happen in the tribulation period as well. The true believer who endures to the end of the tribulation period because of his steadfast faith and the midst of everything against him will be delivered. That's when he says, he who endures to the end shall be saved. That doesn't have anything to do with spiritual salvation. He's not talking about as you talk about, you trusted Christ and you were saved. The word saved means delivered. And what it means is they're going to be delivered out of the, out of the seven-year tribulation period and they're going to enter the millennial kingdom that Christ will set up at his second coming. Moving from depravity, sign number eight is declaration, verse 14. This verse I've heard misused by some of the finest men, preachers, scholars I know. And I sit there and I wince every time. And I don't mean to be arrogant, honest I don't. But I sit there and I say, you're dead wrong. You don't know what you're talking about. Why? You don't understand. It's the revelation of you, not the rapture. It's Israel. It's not the church. It's tribulation period. It's not the church age. So then they come and they preach this gospel of the kingdom. Verse 14 will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. We don't preach the gospel of the kingdom, by the way. 
Pastor Rob doesn't preach the gospel of the kingdom from this pulpit. Neither do I. We preach a man must be born again. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. You'll be part of the church. But in the tribulation period, they're talking to Israel and they're still awaiting what? The kingdom. And then the gospel of the kingdom. What did John the Baptist preach? Repent for the kingdom of heaven. What did Jesus preach? Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What do we preach? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. I don't, yes I do. I was going to say I don't mean to be technical. I do mean to be technical. We want to be as much as we can without any sense of arrogance or pride correctly expound the word of God. I've heard people say this kingdom of the earth, the only way we can look for Christ to come and take us out of this earth is to make sure the gospel goes to every nation. And so this verse is used at Mission Conference all, all through all the evangelical. It has to do with the tribulation period. We should preach the gospel in all the world. But the gospel doesn't have to be preached in all the world for Christ to take the church home in the rapture. Do you understand the difference? What he's saying is Christ's second coming to earth cannot happen until, and that's why it's another sign. Until the, oh, that begs a question. You're thinking, well, if all the church has been taken out and every believer is removed from the earth, then where in the world, how is the gospel preached since there are no believers left? I'm glad you asked the question because there's an answer to it. According to Revelation chapter 7, God raises up 144,000 Jews from 12 tribes of Israel. You say, how does he do it? God can do it any way he wants. It's a sovereign act of God. He takes them and he seals their forehead. They are protected servants of Jewish believers that God raises up during that tribulation period by his grace. And what do they do? You see it there. They've been redeemed from the earth and they go and they preach the gospel throughout all the world and God puts a seal of protection about them. Fear God and give him glory because our hour of his judgment has come. So the evangelization of the world takes place through the witness of the 144,000. And then you have the angelic messenger of Revelation chapter 14.6. And you read in 14.6 how God sends an angel and declares this great message of redemption to believe and to fear God and to trust him. So with the 144,000 and the angel from heaven, the whole world is going to hear the gospel of the kingdom that the king is coming. I listened and I wept this morning as I was praying and I heard the Gaither vocal bang and sing, the king is coming. And they did it in such a powerful way, such a moving way. The king is coming. The king is coming. He's your king. He's my king. We'll be with him. We're coming back with him. We're identified with him. And he's coming back in great power and glory. Can't wait to preach on that next week. Now, as we come to verses 15 to 28, we see this last half of the tribulation period viewed from a different angle. And here's the second most notable sign given before the Lord's coming. We'll see the most notable sign next week. But here's the, as many signs, 10 signs he's going to give. Here's the most notable. Look at verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, the prophet Daniel, stand in the holy place, let the reader understand. Let those who are in Judea flew to the mountains, etc. Do you notice here Jesus doesn't even attempt to explain what he's talking about? 
Now, if you're sitting there and you're a fairly new believer and I say, what is the abomination of desolation? You don't have a clue what it is. Some of you have been Christians for all may not have a clue, and that's understandable. That's all right. But notice the Jews never even questioned what he said. They knew exactly what he was talking about. Why? Because there is a prefigurement of the Antichrist who is, as we're going to see, the cause of the abomination of desolation, who just 200 years before in Jewish history, there was someone prefigured like him who was Antiochus Epiphanes, a Syrian, who came down and he, he destroyed Jerusalem, he, he murdered the Jewish people, he killed women and children, and then he went into the holy place of God and he offered a pig on the altar. He couldn't do anything more to disdain the Jewish people than to do that. But he's still not the fulfillment, not Antiochus Epiphanes. So we asked the question, who causes this desolation? What is this desolation? I think a scripture that really warrants two messages, three maybe, that I'll just say in a minute or two, is answered in Daniel 9.27. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. Hold on. If I say to you, how long is a week? I know exactly what your answer is going to be. You're going to say what, class? It's seven days. If I asked a Jew 2,000 years ago, how long is a week? He said, well, that depends. Why? Because you could have a week of seven days or you could have a week of seven years. Remember when Jacob worked seven years uh, for, for Rachel? It says when Jacob fulfilled his what? His week. It's a week of seven years. So the context has to determine uh, what, how long is a week. Is it a week of years? Or seven years long or is it a week of days? There's clear from Daniel it's a week of years because he says from the beginning of the command to restore Jerusalem, Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, 445 B.C., unto the coming of the Messiah and the cutting off of the Messiah is going to be 69 weeks. So 69 weeks times 7 years is 483 years, a total of 490 years of 70 weeks upon Jerusalem. So if you've already fulfilled 69 weeks when the Messiah is rejected, that leaves how, long, how much left behind, class? One week. How long is one week? Seven years. How long is the tribulation period? Seven years. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, notice he says, and Mark uses a masculine pronoun. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, standing in the holy place. So he's talking about a he who is standing in the holy place, much like Antiochus Epiphanes did about 200 years before. Are you with me? Okay, now, let's, let's move on here. So apparently at the beginning of the tribulation period, a powerful political leader appears on the scene called many names. John uses the, the word antichrist. John alone uses antichrist. He uses it five times. At the beginning of the tribulation period, he'll promise to protect Israel from their enemies so they may dwell in peace and safety in the land. And this is the covenant that marks the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period. But then halfway through the seven years, Antichrist will break the covenant. So if you look at the seven years, say three and a half years, three and a half years, three and a half years is relatively a time of peace for Israel. Three and a half years is a time of, of great persecution, great tribulation like they've never known. So halfway through the years, Antichrist breaks the covenant, and when he does, he'll defile the temple. 
Now this is described in Daniel 11:31. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. You said, what is he talking about? When Antichrist comes, he breaks the covenant. He first of all is a time of peace. And you read that in Ezekiel 36, 37. They're, they're, they're dwelling in unlocked doors and unwalled cities because why? They're at peace. They're protected by the Antichrist. Everyone wants peace for Israel. Everyone wants a solution in the Middle East. Bush, Clinton, everybody tried. Everybody failed. It's not going to happen until Jesus comes back. It's just as simple as that. But here the Antichrist, now he's, he breaks, he breaks, and then he does something that is so very despicable. Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians 2.4 that the Antichrist who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or worship of Christ so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. That's the abomination of desolation. He takes the place. That's why he's called anti-Christ. Anti, the Greek words, means not only against Christ, which he is, but anti also means in the place of. So as a man of peace, he stands in the place of Christ. I am the Christ, I'm the man of peace. But then his true colors come out midway in between when he shows himself as he is a man of war, a man of persecution, and a man that hates the Jewish people. He'll demand that they worship him so he breaks his covenant with Israel, begins to persecute the Israels. Notice also, the first thing he does, he causes the, the, different, the, the non-bloody and the bloody sacrifices to, to stop. He doesn't allow them to offer sacrifice anymore. Now what's that tell you? Well, if they're offering animal sacrifice in the temple, then what's that tell you? There's got to be a temple. What are the Jews waiting for every minute at this, at this very day? The right opportunity to build the temple. What temple is that? The millennial temple? No, it's the tribulation period temple. There's got to be a temple in the tribulation period in order for sacrifices to be offered. Dispersion, sign number 10. I'm doing good, folks. <laughs> Listen to dispersion. And let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, the ones who's on the housetop not go down to take what's in his house and let the one who's in the field not turn back. When the Antichrist breaks his covenant with Israel, Jews need to run for their lives. Get out of Dodge. Get out of Jerusalem. Run for your life. Head for the hills. They need to do it quickly. Don't go back for anything. Don't pack your bags. Get out of town. There's going to be bloodshed, persecution like the Jews have never known before. As awful as the Holocaust was. Under Hitler. I don't mean to trivialize it. You can never trivialize it. But dare I say it's nothing compared to what's going to happen in the tribulation period. Verse 19, alas for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in their days. Why did Jesus say that? How would you like to be nine months pregnant and say run, get out of town? Verse 20, pray your flight may not be in winter, have the why adverse winter weather conditions makes this tough, plus sabbatical laws make it very difficult for that kind of activity. Verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world. Not been from the beginning of the world. Time of terrible persecution. 
persecution like the Jewish people have never seen. And if those days, verse 22, had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. It's a good thing the tribulation period is over seven years in life. If it were, no Jew would be left alive. They'd be annihilated. But God has promised his people, the Jewish nation, the elect nation of Israel, the physical people of the nation of Israel will never become extinct. They are his channel. And though they have turned their backs on God, and they are turning their backs on God, someday God is going to regenerate them. And he'll continue to pour his blessing through them, throughout all the earth. The earth will be blessed. God still has a purpose and program for his elect chosen people. Verses 23 to 28, And if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will rise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray a possible, even the elect. I told you beforehand, see, if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. If they say he's in the inner rooms, don't believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is there, the vultures will gather. It's going to be people who will try to impede the escape of the Jewish people as they're escaping the wrath of the Antichrist. They're going to be told everything's okay. Antichrist isn't a bad person. He's not really after you. That's fake news. Everything is fine. Jesus says, don't listen to him. Then how do we know when he gets here? For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. We've all been in those terrible thunderstorms where the lightning just blinds you. Just think of that all around the world. There's going to be lightning from the east to the west. Think of the fear. People running and climbing under rocks, trying to hide. The day of the wrath of God has come. The day of grace is over. Judgment has come. And it will be like it's never been before. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. You say... Well, what is that? That's a, that was a famous Jewish idiom back in those days. Where you find a carcass, you want to find a vulture going in and tearing into the carcass. The carcass are the dead people, the unbelievers at the time of judgment of the great tribulation period. And Jesus is likened as coming and, and bringing judgment upon that wretched, sinful, corrupt, decaying carcass to which the Lord will come into judgment and tear and rip and shred that carcass to pieces. It's a very vivid picture. God swoops down. Paul writes about this in 2 Thessalonians. And when, uh, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And as awful as the tribulation period is, it pales compared to going to hell for eternity. That's what Jesus said. Let me close the message. Matthew 24, Jesus gives us a glimpse into the future. He never gives us these facts to fill our heads. He intends prophecy to have a practical application to where we are now. So what difference does the tribulation period Israel have in our lives. First, 
knowing what the Bible says about the future should give us confidence. God's in control. Don't be scared. It's one thing if God is so sovereign he could just do what he wants to do and he does without any will of a human, but to think that God will use all the vile awful dictators and people who hate Christ, even knowing how they're going to respond and still move the events to the second coming. That's where we're headed, folks. We're heading to the second coming. Have confidence. Because the Bible is our authority. Secondly, knowing what the Bible says about the future should give us hope. In fact, the rapture of the church is called the blessed hope. Church-age believers won't experience these terrible events of the tribulation period or the wrath. We await the return of Jesus at the rapture to take us to heaven. And we don't want to be left behind. If you've never seen that series or read the books, you ought to. They're good. Third, knowing what the Bible says about the future spurs on to holiness. The Antichrist will bring destruction to the earth. And that's a reminder of what we see all around us as temporary. That's why we need to remember what's truly important in this life, the spiritual, the heavenly, the eternal. And so we press on to holiness. So we asked the question at the beginning of the message, what time is it? I think most of us would agree it's later than you think. Let me put it this way. I'm up on a little platform here. Except I want you to pretend there's a big curtain going all the cross here, and you've come to see a play. But all you see up there is this curtain. And all the actors are on the stage. They're just waiting for the curtain to open. I see over there the United States of Europe, key factor in biblical prophecy. I see Babylon. I see Iraq. I see the rise of Islam. I see the nation of Israel. All the actors are on the stage. They're all on the stage. All we're waiting for is what? The curtain to open. What's the curtain represent? When God calls the church up to heaven, the rapture of the church. You don't want to go through that period. But if you're lost today, if you've never come to faith in Christ, if you don't have that assurance that Christ is your savior, and Christ should come for his church today, you'd be left behind. Some believe those who knew the truth and had a knowledge of the truth but never accepted it, if that happened, they could not be saved. They might be right. All I know is no one wants... Listen, imagine when you trust Christ in the tribulation period, just expect to be beheaded. It's going to be an awful time. I don't want you to be left behind. I beg you, come to Christ. I don't want you to go to hell. I want you to come to Christ. God so loved the world, he gave his son for you. Would you bow with me in prayer?